Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And I'm Shannon Bond. Shannon, top of the show, I want to talk about public humiliation and executive compensation. Oh, dear. Okay. Let me ask you something. How much money would you have to be offered to take a job that had, let's say, a 50% chance of failure, and if it failed, all of the blame would go on you? Like an annual salary? Yes. A couple million. A couple of million bucks. Okay. Easily. Here's why I've been thinking about this. Later in the show, we're going to talk about the decline and fall of two companies and their affiliated chief executives, right? Right. Now, in their case, the two companies are Theranos and Valiant. There are some accusations of malfeasance or malfeasance. Actually, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that word. Malfeasance. Okay, malfeasance. All right. But take the more sort of normal situation, the more typical situation, where when a company fails or something goes wrong and its stock price plummets, right, you always think of that company's chief executive. In some cases, at most, there's two people you think of, the chief executive and the chairman of the board when those roles are split, right? right? So look at what's happening with Yahoo right now, okay? You're thinking about Marissa Mayer. When you think about the collapse of JCPenney, you think of Ron Johnson. You don't really think about like their CFOs or the team that was helping them. You think of them, right? All of the humiliation involved with the downfall of a company when it happens ends up with the CEO, right? With the person in charge. So I guess what I've been trying to think of now is exactly how do we value that? Can we value that? You know, when you take on a role like chief executive, isn't one of the risks you're taking that when the company fails, if it does fail, right, you're going to be taking all the blame and you're going to be in the spotlight and that can be quite humiliating. Right. Well, it's the flip side of essentially having what like performance-based targets, right? Like I'm going to do well if the stock price does well, but there's a there's a negative to that too. Exactly. Right. But there's always like a team involved, mm-hmm. right? I mean, but yeah. we don't really think of the others. So yeah. even if they end up losing their jobs alongside the CEO, no, history doesn't little... look at them as yeah. the people who screwed up. Well, and if, frankly, I mean, I think part of the reason I think about how I would value it is like these days when everything lives forever on Google, like if you, you know, Google the name of a company, like who's going to be associated with it? It's the CEO. That's exactly right. And one of the reasons this is interesting to me is because business like life involves a heavy element of luck. So what if you take on the CEO role at a time when maybe even your entire industry is about to go obsolescent, but you didn't recognize it because there were these undercurrents of innovation happening that were about to make you obsolete, but you didn't recognize it because maybe nobody recognized it. It just sort of happened. And so through no fault of your own in that extreme example, okay, you end up being humiliated as the person in charge of this company that failed, even though it was mostly down to luck, right? Now, in many cases, it's not just down to luck. It's a kind of indecipherable combination of the two. But doesn't it seem like that's worth something? Doesn't it seem like when we think about what we compensate executives, right? And I'm not saying that executives are undercompensated. I'm just saying it seems like a part of their compensation should be allocated to what you might call the public humiliation premium because they are taking on that risk. Right. But the counter argument is they're taking on that risk and they 
didn't I mean it, it isn't it somewhat their fault and I mean most cases you're saying in the extreme example maybe it wasn't their fault maybe there was something completely like out of left field comes in but the point is you know they're this chief executive they're supposed to be running this company they have a duty to their shareholders or to whoever you know is their owners and they are being paid to perform that and if you yes. can't perform that you and, can't perform and, it and you do get you do get a lot of reward when things go right so it's right. a very high risk high reward situation. I don't, I'm not really yeah. feeling sorry for any of these people. Yeah, but there's there's, a, there's another element to this too, a more kind of human element that's fascinating to me as well, which is that it takes a very specific kind of person to even want to be a CEO, yes. right? I can tell you, I would never want to oversee an organization with like 300,000 people, right? It just doesn't right. appeal to me. And also, one of the things that we know from having studied CEOs, and our colleague Lucy Kellaway writes about this all the time, is that CEOs tend to be less sympathetic, more arrogant, right? Less attuned to the sort of more normal, typical, everyday struggles of other people. They're sociopaths is what you're saying. A lot of them (laughs) have sociopathic tendencies. And so for them, it may not even matter that they might one day be humiliated. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So should we compensate them if they don't even care? Right. I don't know. I don't know. It's just a fascinating topic to me. I just wanted to talk about it. I want to get that off my chest, right? I don't think there's been much empirical work done on this, by the way. It's just kind of something that intrigues me. With that off my chest, let's get on to today's show. And on the show today, the future of wearables, wearable technology. To this point, it's been quite limited what they can do. But the future seems quite promising. We're going to talk to Amanda Parks, Chief of Technology at Manufacturing New York and a visiting scientist at MIT Media Lab. And then after that, the downfall of Theranos and Valiant. It seems like there is no abyss deep enough to contain them. I'm being a little too dramatic, but FT reporter David Crow is going to come in to discuss the latest. These are two fascinating sagas. Stick around. Lots of fun stuff in today's show. And first up on today's show, when you think of wearables, maybe you think of the Apple Watch, maybe you think of Google Glass, and maybe you're a little bit disappointed by how limited they are and also by how obtrusive they are, how unnatural they feel. But the future actually really is quite promising. And we are joined now by Amanda Parks. She's the chief technologist at Manufacturers New York and a visiting scientist at the MIT Media Lab. She has a background in engineering, design, and tech. She's really fascinating, and she's here with us in the studio. Amanda, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Let's start with some basics here. You have a background in both fashion and tech. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about what you do at Manufacturing New York and how you came to it? Great. Yeah. So I consider myself a fashion scientist, which to a lot of people, they don't really think that that exists as a profession, but it's it's becoming a more and more um, a reality. So basically, my background is split between mechanical engineering, product design, computer science, interaction design, robotics, through various labs and, and many years of school. Um, and so what I'm doing right now is trying to merge the fashion and technology industries, um, be kind of creating a bridge there. I care deeply about um, what's happening with 
with emerging technologies, um, what's happening with the future of, of innovation in that space, but also preserving the, the sheer joy and aesthetics of the fashion industry, what we see as kind of defining ourselves through personal expression, um, and all the sort of the, the love that comes from that and, and the market for both of them, quite frankly. Uh, so I joined Manufacture New York, which is a hybrid fashion incubator for fashion companies and fashion tech brands, as well as a manufacturing facility and a technology R&D lab for the future of fashion tech and textiles and fiber science. So we're really trying to create a model where we have uh, shared space with creative studios, where we can have real manufacturing going on, rescuing a lot of what's sort of falling apart in the garment industry right now in New York City, and then also push forward through, with innovation, uh, with the latest technologies uh, that's really sector specific and to offer the kinds of services um, that we need to really push the future of the fashion tech and wearables industry forward. Okay. Speaking of wearables, right? I think right now when people think of wearable technologies, they think of like a smartwatch, they think of the Fitbits, stuff that's pretty cool that you couldn't do a few years ago. But you're a little bit more sour on the state of wearables right now. And you said recently in an article that the state of wearables now is about where the internet was in 1993. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so it's not that I'm sour on it. It's that I really want people to recognize that we're in the infancy of this really new area of interaction. And it encapsulates so many kind of diverse disciplines that that's why it's taken a long time for it to emerge. I mean, I, when I got to MIT in 2002, 2003, you know, the wearables looked like a computer throw up on your jacket. You know, they were huge, <laughs> huge constructions that, you know, were kind of just, if you strap it on your body, it's wearable. And now we've gotten, of course, that technology down to, to tiny parts, to tiny boards, and we can fit it on our wrist. And what you've seen emerge in the market of wearables is a very Silicon Valley-based infrastructure, which is that, you know, the things that sort of it's sort of by Silicon Valley for Silicon Valley, uh, the kinds of fitness trackers and, and health devices and things that we sort of, you know, will make our our lives potentially better and easier. But it's one very small sliver of what we can do with this. And I think that, you know, what I'm trying to to kind of engage with is, first of all, how do we open up this market to much, to all different kinds of users, um, you know, different kinds of things about either it's for developing countries, either it's for alternative, um, just even age groups, gender, Not <laughs> right? Where, you know, where, gym no, exactly. And, you know, so I, I, I often say like, where is the wearable for my mother who is an older lady wants to wear, you know, elegant things, she will not wear a plastic bracelet, but also I'd love for her to be tracking her health and I'd love for her to have an easy way to do it. And I'm not going to get her to be able to download an app. You know, there has to be a change in, in the kind of fundamental way that we think about how the products are made and who they're made for. Okay. So. And then the other part of that is also about what is missing from the industry. And for people who've been working in it for, you know, over 10 years like me, there's a whole lot of enabling technologies, literally components, connectors, things that are very boring plays when you think about investment, but they're also very important. If you think about the person that owns the USB connectors of fibers, like that technology, that's a billion dollar idea because it goes into every single product and every single wearable. And something like, you know, um, Professor Dan Steingart at Princeton is working on fiber batteries. So you can just have a direct weave into your shirt, right? And you don't even have to think about it. It's completely passive. That will go wait, into- Wait, wait, what would that do? So it would store charge. That the literally the fiber of your shirt will store charge that I can then use to charge something. Anything else. in the world, yeah. Any device, it can be passive. Exactly. You can you, you know you can get 
energy into the environment when you're in places where you don't have it. So just those kinds of fundamental technologies, which are really closer to basic scientific research and enabling technology research that happen a lot more in labs as opposed to startups, it's hard to get money for those kinds of startups. From the sort of style point of view, um, what are you? What are, you, what are some of the things that you think that wearables as they exist now kind of aren't getting quite right that they could learn or that the fashion industry could bring to, to make it more appealing to somebody like your mother or some other sort of non, non-tech non bro consumer? Yeah, that's a good way, good way to put it. Um, so I'll use an example of something that I, a company that I think is getting it right, which is Ringly. I worked with them sort of early on in 2013 and they just had a new launch last night of a bracelet product, but they fundamentally make a notification ring. And which one you're of, wearing. Yes, right which I am. So what happens when you have these kinds of Silicon Valley what we call the quantified self type products. There's a matrix that says, okay, here's the battery life, here's all the functionality, and you can make these kind of charts and graphs about you know, what the functionality is. And what we, we, what we want to be doing is sort of shifting that on its head. And when, when we started working on Ringly, one of the fundamental things was that we only want it to be a very simple buzzer light notification when you get a text or a call, and you can set it to all different kinds of scenarios, apps in your phone, it could just be, you know, you can set it to your husband, you can set it to your babysitter, right? So it's it's a little bit more of an emergency device. But what's wonderful about it is that it only does that. And so when when Christina Mercando, the founder, first went out for investment, part of it was like, why would anybody want that? It do, what else does it do? What, and, and the whole point was that it doesn't do anything else. But it is fundamentally a beautiful piece of fashion. It's seamless. You don't know that this is tech when you're looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that I wear every day, even if I forget to charge it. or you know, and, and it comes in a whole different scenario where the charger is a beautiful ring box that pops open. You slide it in, thinking about the interaction of how do you live. Like nobody wants to plug in their ring. So you get home, the box sits on your jewelry box, you can put it in. So so the fundamentals of of kind of interactivity of and lifestyle are and then just quite frankly the beauty personal expression angle. Like we just as we move the technology forward and it gets sort of cheaper and easier to produce, we're just going to have a lot more options in that space. Yeah, cuz I mean, uh, Shannon, tell me if I'm wrong. You're not wearing any wearable technology right now, are you? I don't I don't, own, yeah. I don't have an Apple Watch, I don't have a smartwatch. I don't have really have any Neither do I, and I actually don't like wearing watches, right? So to me, it might be cool to have a smartwatch or a Fitbit, but it wouldn't feel natural at all. I'm still waiting for the second or third generation. Right. It sounds like what you're doing with smart fabrics is sort of geared towards that, is yes. to sort of make it a part of your life that you almost don't have to think about, right? That's absolutely true. The, the more transparent it is, the more seamless, um, the, the better the technology is, the more, you know, that will actually make things easier for us. So if you think about the, the fiber battery idea that I mentioned, imagine that being woven together with a solar thread so that it's a fundamentally standalone energy system. You walk outside, you don't have to be outside forever, but it's getting a sort of trickle current from solar, capture through solar, it's being stored. And so you don't have to think about whether or not you're jacket is charged or not. It has a sort of a, a fundamental ecosystem on its own. And also if this thing is washable or dry cleanable or whatever, there's no cables, there's no, you know, hard components. This is where this is this is transformative in a way that you just in the way that we think about like things like lycra, which is a really like high performance fiber, but nobody thinks about the difference between cotton and lycra. But when lycra came out, it was, you know, a very a huge technological innovation. What are some of the remaining obstacles to getting from here to there? Because it sounds like you're defining the obstacles as twofold. One is a problem of a lack of imagination and specifically the ways in which fashion would merge with tech, right? The other one is a more straightforward technological obstacle, which is that 
it takes time to develop these new ideas, these new technologies, and we're not there. So why don't you kind of take us through sure, each of those? Too. Yeah. So first of all, I wouldn't necessarily call it a lack of imagination. I might call it a lack of access. Now, that's one of the reasons why I really um, am engaged with dealing with you know big and small fashion companies to get them sort of aware of what's possible with wearables and to have them kind of think differently about what what they could expect, what they shouldn't expect yet, or you know what's coming later. Because when you put a sort of a, a different kinds of technologies into the hands of designers, you get very different things than when engineers design things. And I know this fundamentally from MIT and the model around the Media Lab, which has put together, you know, lots of technologists, but, you know, musicians, artists, designers, and this is where you get this, these these kinds of ideas that, that emerge that are really innovative. And so fashion designers will fundamentally do different things with this. And so giving them access to be able to kind of do that, that's one of the, thing, one of the things. And also the different populations, like I said, Silicon Valley des- designing by four itself, if you have, you know, even things that get designed in New York are very different than in Silicon Valley. You have the European market, you think about heritage and luxury and all these other elements of fashion, um, you know, going forward. So that just having more people, different kinds of people designing for the space will, will get us there in one way. And then, yes, fundamentally, the other thing is these enabling technologies. There's a reason why a lot of the devices are now limited to our wrists or our ears or our eyes. And we talk about the sort of hard-soft divide. And literally, the components of the circuits are hard. <laughs> and so you have to think about, you know, how do we actually transition? I talk about dematerializing or rematerializing printed circuit boards. And, you know, not to get too technical, but just this whole notion of can we have all of the qualities, the interactive qualities, um, the sensors, the capacitance, the resistance, et cetera, in fibers and that are not you know, the standard components of circuits. And so what happens is a lot of this research gets done in university labs or government labs, and they don't, doesn't necessarily make it into the mainstream. It doesn't get uh, scaled up and manufactured. And that's um, one of the things that we're trying to work on is how do we work on these scaling up mos- models, new process technologies for these things? Because a lot of times you can make, you know, three inches of a fiber in a lab, but when you go to make, you know, a thousand yards of it, you maybe need a whole new machine. Right. So there's 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 like layers of enabling technology, both in terms of process and sort of scientific innovation that that need to happen. And we need to get more dollars into that space. And we have to have companies talking to university labs, talking to startups and open up that IP model a little bit more. Like I I really believe that one of the fundamentals of this industry being successful is new um, intellectual property models where we can have shared IP or in, like an enabling layer of IP where everybody has access to it. And then and then you sort of skirt off and, and own separate parts of it. But by keeping everything shrouded and by sort of having lots of lawsuits going on between uh, companies trying to get things out in the world, that's that's actually slowing things down for the industry in general. Who is investing? Is it mostly universities or the government or is it private corporations? It's a mixture. I think, you know, obviously there's the the standard VC type models for things like wearables. And I think, you know, as we know from the VC industry, there's a lot of follow on. So mm-hmm. this is the the Fitbit of X or, you know, so if you can sort of structure your model in that way. But, you know, that's that's falling off a little. It's a little saturated and people are realizing that, you know, that there's there's things that are missing. And I'm constantly kind of talking about this. Um, so it is a struggle right now to kind of get us to that next level. And then, yes, there is absolutely grant money going into it. And, and people are trying to work on just a lot of 
different models around it. I mean, we we fundamentally are also a mission-driven business. So we're creating a kind of workforce training program for people to become skilled in all different kinds of, of um, manufacturing. So you can get high-quality middle-class manufacturing jobs in New York City. We're in an area that has a, a potential walk-to-work pop, uh, population for this in, in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. And so, and you know, we want to create a, a good minimum wage and, uh, and just really changing the kind of process of work and production. We can make money off of made in America and made locally, locally made goods through models of efficiency, technology, innovation. It's not just about flat labor costs. So it's a, it's a bigger kind of political question as well. I want to talk about some more examples of fun new technologies that are coming down the pike. Because so far, you've talked about uh, the ring that notifies you whenever whatever you've set to program sends you a notification. And you talked about a shirt that can charge whatever it is that you want charged. That yeah, doesn't exist yet as a shirt. Right, the, right, right. As a yeah, fiber. No. Yeah. The fiber, <laughs> smart fabrics. Yeah, exactly. um, you also, I think, have worked on uh, other kinds of technologies that uh, become a better fit for you over time. Uh, I think a couple of female-specific products like uh, a sports bra and high heels, but it seems like this would be promising for everybody, really, especially given how hard it is for most of us to yeah. find stuff that fits sometimes. Yeah. So one of the one of the things that I always say is, you know, when I define fashion tech, it's not just about things that are powered and things that are electronic, right? So Thesis Couture, which is the the first company that signed into our uh, manufacturer New York Tech Incubator, and that we consider them a partner, um, they are redesigning the high heel from the inside out. Uh, the founder Dolly Singh, it was Elon Musk's head of talent for many years, and she was spent hours and hours walking around the factory floor at SpaceX, we're seeing the most amazing technology and the most amazing engineering minds in the world and saying, why are my shoes so horrible and why am I in so much pain? And starting to ask questions like, why are these not better? And then, you know, the engineer's going, oh, I have no idea what's inside a shoe or how it's made or, you know, this is not, this is literally has not been addressed since high heels were invented. Um, and so, you know, we, we sort of joke around with thesis. It's like if men had to wear high heels, this problem would have been solved 100 years ago. But there are some fundamental things that can be changed. So the company is made up, the team is a rocket scientist. We have an astronaut as an advisor, a material scientist, a mechanical engineer, me, and then a very high-end um, Italian shoe designer, and, like artisan. Uh, artisan and designer. And um, and so this idea is that we start from finite element analysis inside of CAD. We address the idea of, you know, the shoe as if it's a bridge for your foot. It's about the dynamic loading of the body, the static loading, you know, when you're standing, um, what happens with all the forces. Oh, wait, you're, yeah, you're okay. losing me with okay, all the... The point being is that... It becomes a better fit the, over time. Well, it's not, it's, not, it's not a better fit over time. The okay. point being is that, it, is that the, like, in the way that you would do the engineering analysis on a building or on a bridge or any sort of of what you consider a high-tech structure, like okay. all of the you forces do it, that go yes, into it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You do it on a shoe. And you think about the woman's body. And you also we also have an orthopedic surgeon on the team. So we're looking at how the foot should be positioned in space. And you know, not all the damage of a high heel is actually about the height. It's a lot about the foot position and things, you know, things with like turning your bones on things that you make your skin crawl if you kind of understand what's going on inside, <laughs> the reason for bunions. And then also new material properties where we can make this with new ballistic grade polymers, literally the IP around the materials itself, which can be much stronger but still have flexibility. So the whole the whole range of materials science for the last 70 years. You know, shoes right now are made of stamped steel and cardboard, the inside, even the most expensive shoes. Mm -hmm. So think about all the things that we can do. So, so we're doing this, we're producing the insides at a very high-tech factory in Singapore and then creating the uppers both in the US and in Europe to get, you know, it's going to look like Jimmy Choo's, right? From the outside, you're not going to know, but you put them on and they, they will be different. They look like 
real stilettos, but your foot balance is totally different because of the engineering. One final question, because mm -hmm. it, it seems to me like the people who design wearables technology will have to be at least as mindful about privacy issues as any other kind of technology would have to be, as the makers of any other kind of technology, largely because by the time it gets to that advanced stage, we're buying stuff with the technology already implanted in it, yes. right? And so how should we think about that? And what do people like you who work in this industry have to do to make sure that around privacy issues, you're being sort of appropriately sensitive to whatever future worries might come about? Yes. And I think that it's a hugely important question. And I think all the more it becomes even more important because people fundamentally, you know, they have this deep protection around their body. It's, you know, the, this this space that, that can't sort of be um, be violated. And so when we start to think about all the data collection around this, people inherently get nervous. Right. And so and so in some ways, I think this is a benefit because there's all sorts of ways that your data is being collected online and through your devices that people aren't really that aware of until something bad happens. But in a sense, if you're thinking about your body, and I think maybe you could look at the backlash against Google Glass, which when it first happened, like people, you know, suddenly, oh, am I constantly being filmed? Well, actually, you're already constantly being filmed everywhere. It just so happens that it's now very, very personal and you're very aware of it. Uh, and maybe it was just also like this giant nerd cyborg sort of backlash as well uh, from, a, from a sort of product <laughs> point of view. But but I think that, you know, what we need to be looking at is um, is much more in the realm of biology, especially as these kinds of devices, you know, we're getting more things like circuit tattoo bandages. You see a lot of the medical stuff going straight onto the skin, implantables, ingestibles. This is coming and it has really amazing power to to really take care of us in a way that's not just tracking our steps, but kind of understanding deeply what's going on in your gut. And 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 we've never had the kind of data that we can have from these medical wearables where, you know, the doctor does a test every couple months you have that data, but if you can have all the data of your life all the time and you can try to make algorithms to figure out cancer indicators, I mean, the long-term ramifications of this is absolutely unbelievable if we can figure out the ways to collect it and anonymize it and appropriately sort of map it algorithmically. But I think that, you know, when you look at communities like biology and specifically synthetic biology, which is working on sort of genetic modification and, you know, a lot of this people get very nervous, it's sort of a dirty word, right? They are, have been proactive because they know that that the public is generally like really worried about, you know, you talk about just biolab viruses, it just puts up this giant red flag. So they're being proactive about creating their own communities around um, and, and policies around ethics and what are they going to agree on in terms of standards. Um, so it's about the, what I believe is that it's about the community being proactive and saying, this is how we're going to take care of the data and being transparent about it. Cause I think also a lot of things with people, they will opt in if they think there's going to be some benefit to them. Or they will opt in if they really feel like they can understand it. Because sometimes people just say no because they just don't feel like they're like there's something secret bad could be going on. They're uncomfortable. You know, like this notion that like on Facebook, like even though you can block people and this and that, like fundamentally somehow it's just all the information is going to get out. Right. And so just think, you know, so it's one thing if it's just, oh, your online pictures, but it's another thing if it's things very, very personal about your body. I want us to be proactive in, in both inside of the sort of science and tech community, but also proactive politically because we'll be, you know, we, we don't want to have things like, you know, a lot of the laws around the Internet were made only only created after a situation arose and, uh, you know, and somebody needed to be sued, et cetera, et cetera. So um, so I think that ho hopefully, um, you know, one thing at a time, but I believe that should fundamentally be part of it. It's one of the reasons that we stay really political as an organization and are very um, tied into sort of 
federal, local, and state um, you know, lawmakers and policymakers. Amanda Parks, Chief of Technology at Manufacture New York. And I, I took away all the other titles because <laughs> I'm forgetting them right now. Uh, go back to the start of the, of the segment uh, to get those. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, before you go, what is your long-form recommendation for our listeners? Okay, so I'm going to recommend a book, which is a classic to me. I actually first encountered this book when I was 16 in high school, and it has become sort of a Bible to me. It's called Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees, which is a biography of the artist Robert Irwin, and it's by Lawrence Welchler, who's an amazing biographer. Generally, this explores the kind of journey of Robert Irwin as an artist, and he was a kind of Southern California a surfer figure, hippie figure in the 60s, but also fundamentally kind of digging into a lot of mainstream principles about science and perception with inside of his artwork. And it taught me a sort of a whole different outlook on how you could actually be a creative person and be engaged in kind of the philosophical thought of science. And I think it really reflects a lot on how we should be thinking about tech and this much more kind of global perspective or human perspective on on interaction um, between each other and between and through our environments. But I, I go back and reread it all the time and give it to everyone, everyone that I can think of who's in the, the space of creativity and science. And coming up next, Valiant and Theranos, Shannon and I are joined by the FT's chief implosion correspondent, David Crow. David, I'm only being a little bit facetious right now. It's all I spend my time on, Valiant, Theranos, Theranos, Valiant. Yes. Okay, let's start with Valiant. It's been a while since we talked about Valiant on the podcast. Take us through what had been going on with the company before this week, and then we'll talk about sort of the extraordinary events uh, of the past couple of weeks. Okay, so maybe the easiest place to start is December, um, when uh, the company had already come under attack for uh, um, an arrangement it had with this chain of mail-order pharmacies, which was very murky. But in December, there was a perception that it was getting itself back on track. It had cut this pharmacy chain loose. Uh, it had done a deal with Walgreens, which is a very well-known name, obviously, in the States, one of the biggest uh, drugstores. And, you know, there was a feeling that maybe the new year would be a more propitious time for the company. And then the chief executive uh, became very unwell. He was hospitalized on Christmas Day. Mike Pearson. Mike Pearson with pneumonia. And uh, then he went off for two months. Uh, and he came back uh, at the start of uh, March to find the company pretty much in chaos. It had said that it would have to restate revenues and earnings for two quarters because of this murky pharmacy chain. It had been booking the sales at the wrong time. It had then been double counting the sales. And it's pretty much gone downhill from there. It, it had to warn uh, that it uh, might default on its more than $30 billion of debt. And since then, it's it's been uh, nothing short of uh, a crisis, really. And we remind us sort of Valiant's quite a bit different, I think, than some of its peers in the pharma industry in terms of the model that it took, um, which is not what has seemed to have backfired on it. 
So can you remind us of what that model was, how it worked exactly? So in short, the, the sort of uh, neat way of putting it would be to say the McKinsey uh, model. Its chief executive, Mike Pearson, um, is, uh, was a McKinsey uh, bigwig for uh, about 23 years. And he had a, a playbook that he took into all of the other big pharma companies and said, you're doing this wrong. You don't need to be spending all of this money on research and development. What you need is to buy in assets, fire the research teams, jack up the prices and repeat. And that is how you build a a great pharma company. Now, the big pharma groups, they sort of took some of this advice on board, but but not other parts of it. They sort of did a sort of, you know, mix and match strategy, if you like, which is quite often what happens when a management consultant goes in. And then finally, Mike Pearson gets his own company. (laughs) Just go full bore. (laughs) Where he can put this into practice. And for many years, it looks like he was right. And indeed, a lot of farmer executives used to complain and investors would say, why can't you be more like Valiant? They seem to be doing awfully well. And it was a kind of hedge fund darling for a while for precisely those reasons. Exactly. I mean, it was pretty much, you know, built by Value Act. Um, they, they were the ones that appointed Mike Pearson. They engineered this merger with BioVale, which is a can, was a Canadian company. That's what got Valiant its Canadian yes. uh, domicile. <laughs> so it was a once great American company <laughs> and very low tax rate, which allowed it to pay top dollar for lots of assets. So now Mike Pearson is gone. Mike Pearson is going. Mike Pearson has agreed to stand down, uh, we're told. Uh, But he's still at the helm. And I hear that there's going to be a long period while uh, they try to sort out some of their most pressing problems. And then they'll try and find a chief executive after that because uh, nobody wants the job at the moment. There is a problem with the accountant as well. There were accusations flying back and forth that maybe this was mostly his fault. What's the story behind that? So that's the former chief financial officer, uh, Howard Schiller, was a very senior Goldman Sachs investment banker, was chief operating officer of the investment bank before he came over to Valiant in 2011. And he's pretty much been Pearson's right-hand man throughout the the whole acquisition spree. Uh, He stepped in for Mike Pearson when he was away on sick leave. And uh, lo and behold, earlier this week, uh, the company, um, actually last week, I think it was, the company said that it was his improper conduct that had led to the revenue being incorrectly booked. And he was apparently blindsided by this. He's refusing to stand down from the board, obviously wants to still be in on those conversations if he can be. It's interesting to see how it's going to play out. What a mess. But I want to go back for a second to the business model. There's a kind of obvious ick factor with a business model, especially in the pharma sector, that says just buy these other companies, jack up the prices. Uh, and in right, the past... We saw with the reaction to Martin Shkreli doing essentially the same course, thing, right? right? In the past, Pearson would try to defend the model by essentially saying that the innovation at these smaller places has already been done will take over from here, and that frees up those scientists to continue innovating at new small companies or whatever. Okay, that was the defense in the past. Now it seems like the obvious has sort of like the obvious forces that you would expect to take hold ended up taking hold, right? This is a model that requires, in order to generate the same rates of growth year after year, a strategy of buying more and more companies using debt to leverage up these purchases, and eventually you run out of companies to buy, right? It seems kind of Ponzi schemish, and yet everybody was fooled by it, as you can see by the stock price. I mean, I have a 
a slight amount of sympathy with the first part of the argument. I mean, you know, you often find that the best scientists, the best and brightest scientists are not in mid-ranking jobs at Pfizer or Merck. But if they really believe they have got the keys to an amazing new drug, they go and they spin it out and they try and make themselves into millionaires by, or in some cases even billionaires by doing so. And that's great for them. But for a company like Valiant, if you don't do any of your own research, you have two levers. You have buying in new assets, which becomes harder and harder as the cost of debt goes up. And you have jacking up prices, which becomes harder and harder in an election cycle and, and, and so on. And so both of those levers are red hot at the moment and they can't touch either of them. Yeah, that's a that's a great point about the optics, I guess it's called, of what you're doing. Given that pharma is sort of a sector that is obviously politicized and that comes with it. That being said, I don't know. I just don't know how to think about this. It seems like eventually you run out of room. And to talk about the debt for a minute, this was a big part of your story as well. Now, how could they possibly come back from their current situation when I forget what the exact numbers were, but they owe something like 5 to $10 billion a year in debt repayment in the coming years? If they can't service that debt somehow, they're done. And they basically have to turn over the company to the bondholders. Isn't that right? I mean, yes, they do. I mean, they have what was seen as quite clever for a long while. They have a very easy repayment schedule for the next couple of years. And then I think it's from 2017 or 2018 that gets very punishing. And, and, and it really relies on them to be you know, firing on all cylinders to be producing enough cash to, to, to meet those requirements. And, and the other part of the story here is just the underlying lying franchises are not operating as strongly as people thought either. There's a more pressing problem with the debt, which is that the uh, company is struggling to file its annual uh, filing with the SEC and struggling to file a, a quarterly filing with them as well. And some of the covenants on the debt are linked to it hitting those deadlines. And so it's seeking to to sort of renegotiate with its lenders today. It's sort of offering them higher fees, a 0.5% increase on the interest rate and so on in, in exchange for extending those deadlines. And it, the profile of its debt is a mess because it was very junky debt. It's been sliced and diced and sold off to all sorts of, you know, CLO funds and so on. And and so getting an agreement among 75% of those people is going to be a really difficult job. The possible trajectories that the company can take going forward. Last question on Valiant. Well, I think the only sort of option open to them at the moment is to, A, try to get ahead of this very imminent crisis. You know, try to get the accounts filed, try to get some room, an extension on the deadline from the from the lenders, and try to get a new CEO. And then I think that new CEO's job has to be identifying what assets they can sell that are least dilutive to earnings, but boost their coffers enough that they can accelerate debt repayment. So interesting challenge for whoever decides to take up the what job. a mess. Okay, so next company to <laughs> discuss, which we've talked about more recently, um, is Theranos, the once darling of uh, Silicon Valley venture capitalists, now just looking shadier by the day. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, you know, they had this, as we talked about before, they had this blood testing revolution, allegedly, that their business model was based on. It all seems to be falling apart. So what's happened? So their revolution is is thus. Basically, if we were getting tested on a very regular basis, uh, then we would find 
the diseases or serious diseases before we experienced the symptoms. So, and in order to do that, um, you have to change blood testing. And so the thing that everybody has seized upon is this nanotainer. It's this tiny light bulb shaped vial that you stick in the end of your finger and it draws a few drops of blood. And they say, well, we can get accurate readings uh, for many, many tests from these few drops of blood. We can do it cheaply. And we're going to lobby uh, legislatures, state legislatures around the country to make it so that you don't have to go to your doctor. So all of a sudden, this idea of getting tested on a quarterly basis, say, while you're picking up your deodorant or your shampoo, becomes doable because it's cheap, it's easy, and it's convenient. Right. And I'm not having to go and give vials and vials and all of that, right? Of course. Yeah. And so there is two problems here. The first is that there are many questions about whether the technology works or not. And this week, uh, Mount Sinai uh, released a study uh, which they had done in complete secret where they'd got 60 healthy volunteers and they'd sent them for a bunch of tests at Theranos, a bunch of tests at Quest and a bunch of tests for LabCorp. And Those being the two big... Quest and LabCorp are the, you know, they're, they're the duopoly of blood testing in the US is pretty much it. And they are terrible companies. I mean, about that, Elizabeth Holmes is right. <laughs> you know, they have fat margins, terrible customer service, and so on. But they do mainly get their test results right. <laughs> kind of important. <laughs> uh, which is sort of, you know, uh, in their favor. And so the results came back. And, and, you know, they didn't find that Theranos were getting everything wrong or things wrong by a large margin or anything. But they found that for some tests, for example, cholesterol was one. They were systematically underreporting levels of cholesterol. Now, that's important. You know, people change their behavior based on how low their cholesterol is. They go on a drug. They change what they eat. They do more or less exercise. If you're misreporting it, then you've got an issue. It kind of seems at this point like for Theranos, the cascade of bad news sort of has has brought about a momentum that's going to be really hard to overturn, especially in an industry like this that's based entirely on trust, right? I mean, the simplest way of telling the, the Theranos story right now seems to be they came up with this brand new way of doing things that seemed great, okay? And the one thing they were known for doesn't seem to work very well. Yeah. So I almost even don't even know like what else to like say how, about it. How do you, how do you, get you past that? Yeah, well, it seems like the first thing they have to do is to fix what it is that's broken, but I, I don't, you know, the thing that's broken is their entire business model, right? That was the innovation that they were known for. Without that, what do you have to stand on as a company? Well, it's interesting that we're talking about Valiant and Theranos in in the same section if you like because one of the things that people say to me is, wouldn't it be a much more interesting or a very different story for Theranos if they had done their IPO earlier? Everybody was expecting Theranos to IPO at some point, yeah. um, and they're privately held. And so they don't have a, you know, a stock price. And so we don't see them cratering. But I mean, they would be, you know, in, they would have made a lot more money. <laughs> they would be in dire straits at the moment if right. they've got, you know, publicly traded yes. shares. 
Well, they also wouldn't, we likely wouldn't have been able to be so secretive. I mean, so one of the things that I think is still kind of fascinating, this whole thing, there's been this sort of this mystique around the founder, around Elizabeth Holmes, you know, this young, brilliant woman who dropped out of college to do this thing and put together this like crazy board of, of you know, people collect, connected to the government and the military. But the company is just incredibly, incredibly private, right, about everything they've done. Throughout all of these sort of series of revelations we've had around the problems with the business, have they shown any signs of, of loosening up, of saying, of recognizing Carter's point of we, this is a trust business and we need to establish trust with our customers and therefore, like, all right, we're going to be a little more forthcoming about what we're doing to address these questions? They say so, yes. I mean, I mean, the way they operated was like a Silicon Valley company. I mean, you talk about all of those things, secrecy a board stuffed full of people who are good at lobbying governments and so on. I mean, that sort of instantly makes me think of Uber or Apple or, or someone like that. And the cult of personality. And the cult of personality, uh, the, the the founder who dropped out of uh, Stanford and wears a black turtleneck. I mean, you know, does it remind you of anyone? <laughs> um, but they say so. I, I was talking to one of the scientists that worked there the other day, and, and he says they are going to try to start producing data. They're maybe going to make some of their technology available for third-party testing. They haven't decided what, you know, shape this takes yet, but they think that they can, you know, address the concerns that the scientific community has because it's about trust, but it's also about data. If you can start producing, you know, bona fide data that proves that your technology does work after all, yeah, then you might be okay. I guess it may be a better word for what yeah. I meant. Trust that the the, the tests are going to come back as mm-hmm. being accurate. Exactly. I didn't mean trust in terms of you tell me something and I think you're telling me the truth mm-hmm. to the best mm-hmm. of your ability. I mean, it just doesn't work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Trust in the product itself. Well, trust among consumers, though. I mean, I think trust is right in the sense that consumers don't read the uh, the sort of peer-reviewed data <laughs> <in> journals. <laughs> you know, they just want to know that the company's okay and and above all i think one of the biggest problems is that the whole company is built on a shaky foundation because the thing that i outlined at the beginning which is regular testing saves lives is a is an unproven theory right. we have screening for some cancers prostate cancer cervical cancer breast cancer out of those three, cervical cancers may be the only one where there's a, a broad opinion that it has saved a lot of lives. And that's not a blood test. You actually see the cancer cells in, in a cervical cancer test. There isn't a good blood test for melanoma. There isn't a good blood test for brain cancer or ovarian cancer. And if there were, we'd all be getting them, you know. So they have a problem that even, even if they were able to sort out the technology, just because you get tested once a quarter it doesn't mean you're not going to die that's fascinating two great stories david crow chief calamity correspondent here at the financial times uh the catastrophe beat it looks like it's a lot of fun yeah it's great fun thanks for being here uh but before we let you go uh, what is your long form recommendation so there's a very good story by alice park in time on the immunotherapy revolution. Immunotherapy is this new class of cancer drugs that turns your body into the weapon against cancer rather than trying to kill the cancer itself. It tries to teach your body to root out the tumor and and to try to destroy it. And it's having some remarkable results. She talks to some people in the piece who 10 years ago were told to go and prepare for the end and they're alive and well and talking to her. So a nice story, a, a good farmer story. Yeah. <laughs> there are some of those. Yes. 
And that's the end of the interview segment of today's show. But Shannon and I haven't given our recommendations yet. Shannon, you want to go first? Sure. I'm going to recommend an episode of the podcast Reply All, a recent episode called Milk Wanted, and it's about breast milk and the fact that you can't really sell it in the U.S., which is sort of interesting, something I hadn't really thought about, but has been more in my mind lately, the question of this whole market for uh, breast milk and what it means for breastfeeding and all kinds of other things. And it's just a really interesting sort of exploration of the history of sort of wet nurses and public health programs and what you do when you want to feed your baby and you can't feed them formula and how you get it. That's a great show in general too. Yes. They, a, they dive into like, like this sometimes kind of random topics that you wouldn't necessarily have thought about, but then they kind of approach them from really interesting, uh, not always straightforward ways. Cause they, they define themselves as a show about the internet. Right. So there's always some kind of internet connection to right. the piece. What's the internet connection to the non-existent market for breast milk? So they open up with the story um, about a woman who had a baby, wasn't able to breastfeed, and her baby uh, reacted really badly to formula, which would obviously be like the solution in most cases. And and it was about sort of her quest to try to, to, to find breast milk because that was the thing that her baby could eat and not get sick. And she started off through some Facebook groups. There's there's Facebook groups that sort of connect people. Then went down a whole hole of of uh, a couple of sites that essentially kind of function like Craigslist, selling connecting buyers and sellers. But it's a it's a complicated topic, Very to cool. say the least. Yeah. Anyway, uh, what's your recommendation? I am also going to recommend a podcast, but rather than a specific episode, I'm just going to recommend the podcast itself. It's called Conversations with Tyler. Tyler, in this case, is Tyler Cowan, the economist at George Mason University and the blogger at Marginal Revolution. Those who've read his blog know that he is a kind of intimidatingly learned and erudite guy, but he's also a really great interviewer, and his guests are really quite fascinating. It's a sporadic podcast. It doesn't come out uh, on a regular basis, but he's done eight episodes now. A great place to start is the very first one with Peter Thiel, uh, and I also recommend the one with Danny Roderick, the political economist at Harvard. Tyler doesn't waste a lot of time with like the usual niceties. He just jumps right into very challenging questions. The podcast does assume some knowledge of economics. So be warned, you might have to do a little bit of research if you're coming at it you know, from a very lay perspective. Uh, but it's a really great, fascinating podcast, Conversations with Tyler. And that is all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for listening. Shannon, you want to take us home? Yep. Please give us a call and let us know what you thought of the show. You can leave us a voicemail at 917-551-5012 or send us an email at alphachat at ft.com. We're on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L, and Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia. We put up show notes, including links to what we've talked about and our recommendations and our guest recommendations at ft.com slash alphachat. And finally, please go on iTunes and leave us a rating and review. It helps us hear what you like about the show and helps other people find the show. Shannon, you know who doesn't need to get paid a public humiliation premium? Amy Keene, because you humiliate her for free every week. Erroneous. Erroneous. <laughs> because she fails at nothing. So she doesn't ever have to worry about public humiliation because there's nothing that she is bad at. Thanks so much for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you back here again for another episode of Alpha Chat next week. 
Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.